0: Good morning, Twin Cities Church, and thank you, Ricardo, for reading such a lengthy passage. Um, As Deirdre mentioned, we uh, have a really important and much-anticipated election this week. They're saying that uh, they anticipate uh, the record turnout across the nation in terms of numbers of voters who are going to show up and express their constitutional right and privilege to, to vote for all of the various candidates now, I don't think any candidate is saying that I am going to solve all of the problems of this country, but you get the sense that that um, if the other team wins, uh, darkness is going to cover the land. Well, obviously, uh, our nation's ills will not be solved with whoever gets voted into whatever offices. And so, I think a big question that, that all of us have and, and certainly the nation has is what will be America's fate. And there are certainly no lack of voices cautioning us and warning us about uh, really America's demise and collapse. I got a text message this week from a member of the church uh, saying that the Atlantic was freaking them out because of all of these articles. Uh, and it's not just the Atlantic. Uh, that that are talking about is, is this the end of America these types of warnings are not new they have been around for well over a century people who have spotted and identified characteristics that are consistent with other complex societies throughout history that have collapsed Uh, One of my favorites uh, is a book that I read probably 20 years ago uh, by Morris Berman called The Twilight of American Culture. He identified five characteristics that he said were consistent with with complex societies that eventually collapsed. Those five characteristics were first, massive amounts of defense spending, um, the loss of a national unifying spirit, there's a growing gap between the richest and the poorest of the nation, which isn't saying anything about necessarily the number of people in poverty, as much as the envy that grows because of the differences uh, in people's uh, material wealth. Uh, number four, a decrease in literacy, was, which isn't just the ability to read, it's the ability to read and write and, and calculate in order to improve your own life and the lives of others. And the fifth one was that the problems solved uh, are inversely proportional to the amount of money spent. So the more money you spend, the least amount of problems get solved. And he then goes on to explain how America has been in this place for a long time. And this was, like I said, uh, 20 years ago. Now, are these people correct? Are they accurate? Are they, are they accurate prophets in terms of what the future of, of America is going to be like? Who knows? Uh, and whether or not we believe them. I'm not sure it really matters, but we can certainly agree that these are unsettling times in a number of ways, whether it's the the, the concern uh, about the problems of systemic racism, whether it's the politics and the policies behind the various candidates, whether it's, it's COVID, unemployment, uh, economic disparities and a whole other a host of other disparities, um, there are a lot of things that have created a very unsettled uh, season in all of our lives as a nation really around the world what we need to do as christians is ask the question is our sense of security tied to our way of life as americans we all would have to agree that it's in some way This year, 2020, has been a significant test. There is no guarantee about the future of America. There's been no guarantee about the future of any country. Even the nation of Israel did not have an unconditional guarantee about its prosperity and future success. And I know there are a lot of us that are concerned about what America is going to be like for our children and our grandchildren and the future generations a lot of unsettledness so why do we pick Ezekiel at this time well Ezekiel was prophesying during a moment in Israel's history where they were on the brink of collapse it was right near them and then he was also prophesying after they indeed did collapse as a nation so we're gonna use this series to look at what got them to that state um, and then what God has through the prophet of Ezekiel and for us today on how to persevere through these times of situations where there is a a national sense of being unsettled, even a national collapse of a country, and how to overcome these things in the short term and in the long term. And so the book of Ezekiel is is 48 individual words from God to the prophet Ezekiel during this time of of Israel's uh, inevitable and actual demise. And so chapter 20, as I was thinking about the uh, the message for this week, I thought, you know, what I really need to do is give a little bit of history about the nation of Israel so that we can understand more of its context. And, and as I continued to study and read uh, over the last couple of weeks, chapter 20 actually provides a historical framework that Ezekiel is using, that God is using at the time to, to set israel at their current place in a historical context so that they can understand from god's point of view how he viewed the nation and why they were heading in the direction that they were so chapter 20 begins with it says a certain number of elders and so they had some of the leading uh the leaders of the nation of israel they came before ezekiel And so you can you can kind of imagine so this group of people now ezekiel and daniel and shadrach meshach and abednego and some of the other characters that we see throughout the prophets had been nebuchadnezzar had had taken jerusalem captive uh, a few years earlier and had taken a few of the the kind of the nobles and the wise people and the young men and the young women Uh, To to Babylon and so there's a group of them already in Babylon and so they're unsure about their own states They're unsure about what's going to happen to Jerusalem Um, They have prophets telling them one thing they have prophets telling them another Uh, and it's just like us we're constantly, The reason why we're so glued to our devices these days, in addition to the uh, a, addictive characteristics that they build into those platforms, we are wanting information. We're looking for some opinion and some perspectives on how to think about where we're at and where we're headed. And they know Ezekiel, he's a prophet. He can actually speak to the Lord and maybe even get some perspective about what's gonna happen in the future. And so they come before Ezekiel and they sit down And God is immediately, he is immediately um, indignant. He says, is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired by you. It's too late. You know, that throughout the Proverbs, uh, wisdom calls out. To the simple to the naive to the rebellious and says it says come to me seek wisdom leave the simple naive life seek wisdom and live but then also there are messages that if you are in the midst of the turmoil the the waves of the seas are crashing over you your life is collapsing you failed to seek wisdom before you needed it and now here they are when they needed it and wisdom said I'm not going to listen to you And that's exactly what God is saying here I am not going to listen to your requests Israel it is too late and then the, the, the translation where it says in verse 4, will you judge them, son of man, will you judge them? It's actually a declaration, it's a command. Arraign them, arraign them. He's literally saying, bring forth the charges against this nation, Ezekiel. And he then goes through the charges, really in, in, in five different phases. And then another two phases says, here's what the future is gonna be like. So he goes over their, their past, he goes over their present, and he goes over the future. It's like the ghost of, of Christmas past, present, and future in the Christmas carol. That's exactly what God is doing here. So the first four phases are Israel's history. Phase one is when they were in Egypt. They were in Egypt crying out to God for deliverance. They were being enslaved. Israel was killing their children, excuse me, Egypt was killing the children, the firstborn children of Israel. And God promised them, okay, I've heard your cries for deliverance. I am going to take you from this slavery in Egypt and I am going to put you in a land. It's the most glorious of all lands, the text says. But you need to turn from the Egyptian gods. Your eyes need to, Look away from the detestable things that they're attracted to. Well, they did not turn from those Egyptian gods. They did not turn their eyes from the detestable things. And the text says that God wanted to pour out his wrath upon them and wipe them out, but he didn't for the sake of his name, so that it would not be, his name would not be profaned throughout the nations, because God had made these promises to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob about what he was going to do with their nation their people and if he were to wipe them out he would be a God that broke his promises so then phase two so he's delivered them from Egypt even after their rebellion he's fulfilling his promises even though they don't deserve it and they rebel then in the wilderness he gave them laws that give life he gave them the Sabbath day. Now the Sabbath day was an automatic day off. Back then you worked all seven days because you didn't know if you were going to be able to work the next day or the next month or the next year what the produce was gonna be like. But God said, I will provide for you even to the degree that you can take a day off and rest. I will still provide for you. So it's a, it's a vacation day. But yet again, they rebelled. They rebelled against God, they rebelled against his laws, they continued to serve the Egyptian gods, they continued to set their eyes on the detestable things. Again, God said, I wanted to pour out my wrath against you and wipe you out, but relented from doing so for the sake of his name so that it would not be profaned among the nations. But that they, as this first generation of Israelites, he wouldn't wipe them out, but they would be prevented from going into this most glorious of lands. So then he goes into phase three. Phase three is the generation after that first generation. It's the children. He said, avoid the sins of your parents. Follow my laws. Enjoy your day off. Keep the Sabbaths. But they rejected God. They disobeyed his laws. They kept worshiping Egyptian and the gods of the nations around them. They didn't obey the Sabbaths. And at this phase in Israel's history. They even began to offer up their children as fire sacrifices to the god Molech, to the false god Molech. Again, God's wrath was, he wanted to pour out his wrath, but again, even though they didn't deserve it, he relented for the sake of his name so that it would not be profaned among the nations. And he said that he gave them new laws. They were not life-giving, but burdensome. And that they would be scattered, that the nation of Israel would eventually be scattered among the nations. Phase four, they're in the land as subsequent generations from that generation of, of the children of the first, and they continue to rebel. They continue in their blasphemy, which is which are words of profanity against god they continue in their treachery their betraying of him they continue in their child sacrifices burning their own children so he moves from these four phases into the fifth and he's speaking then directly to these these elders that are sitting before ezekiel he says you all are guilty of the same things that these f- that the people of Israel in these four phases are guilty of. You are guilty of worshiping foreign gods that are made of wood and stone and metal. You are guilty of sacrificing your children. You are guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And then he concludes this this judgment with the same, same phrase that he began it. Shall I be inquired? Of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of you. Your time has come to an end. There are no more chances. It's too late. You're not going to escape the consequences that are coming, that your your ancestors are guilty of and that you are guilty of as well. But he doesn't leave it with that he goes into an additional two phases about israel's future the first verse of this next phase phase six is verse 32 and it's it's like it's like a you know if you're familiar with the gospels and the stories of jesus there are times when when jesus corrects the the pharisees or he's, he's speaking to somebody that has come to him and he reads their minds. He knows what they're thinking. That same kind of thing has happened here. These elders are thinking, we wanna be like the nations of the world. We wanna be like the other nations. And it, and it calls back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, where God is, has brought them into the land but they are still in a, in, a, in a lot of tumult. They're not following God totally. They're doing what is right according to their own eyes. All right? They keep pursuing the things that they see in the other nations and they go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king like the other nations because we wanna be like the other nations. And if you think about what was going on, the other nations, there was always this constant striving for military and economic domination of the region. And that's what the nations were always striving for. And Israel wanted to move out of this place where they're being overcome by all these surrounding nations. They wanted to get to a place of dominance. They thought that the means of that was a king. When God had told them, I will bring you into a land and you will have no fear of enemies. They did not want to see God as king. And in that passage in 1 Samuel 8, God told Samuel, Samuel, give them what they want. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as their king. And that's the same place they're here. Even though israel is in this place where part of them have been taken captive into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. They They have the world's largest army literally at their doorstep, controlling all of them. Nebuchadnezzar has established a puppet king in Jerusalem. They are in no place of control, but they still long for that place where they can have military and economic dominance over the other nations. And God says, no, I know your thoughts. That's not going to happen. I will be your king. You will end this rebellion. You will end this treachery and idolatry. I am going to gather all of Israel And whereas before God did not want to profane his name among the nations, God is going to gather Israel, and he is going to do it in front of all of the nations. And God is going to pour out his wrath on the nation of Israel and finally bring judgment to them in front of all of the nations to prove that he will stick by his word. And his word said he would judge them if they rejected him and those guilty of the idolatry and rebellion against god would be purged from the nation and god would reign over it as king and israel's rebellion will come to an end that's phase six in their future the last phase phase seven on the holy mountain god is going to bring all of his promises to completion. And Israel is going to be so overwhelmed by the grace of God. Their their sins, their history will be very obvious to them. And the grace of God for them, they will feel completely undeserving of. They will they will have the reality of their need and dependency very clear before their eyes and they will see the grace of God and it will overwhelm them. And it's gonna overwhelm them in two ways. They are going to loathe themselves because of their sin. But they're also, in response to God's grace, they're going to overwhelmingly pour out their thanksgiving and gratitude to God and make offerings to him that are of their choicest and most generous expressions. They're going to willingly serve and give their best To god that's israel's future that's israel's future that's what they could anticipate and israel and ezekiel was still calling that present generation even though they were in the midst of collapse there was still opportunity for those in the nation maybe the nation was collapsing but those in the nation who stayed faithful to god who repented of their sin and drew near to him and obeyed him had an opportunity to look forward To this future kingdom. So, what is Ezekiel's message to us? Well, there are are three things that I think are applicable to us at this moment. First, we are a called out people, just as Israel was a called out people. Second, we are called to live a distinct life, just as Israel was called to live a distinct life. And I think, third, you know, the, the, the elders, these certain elders that came before Ezekiel were, were there because of their, of their fear, because of their anxiety, because of a, a lack of certainty about their own lives and the future generations. So this third, the third point is that the degree to which we are internally distraught and outwardly selfish, two things, inwardly distraught and outwardly selfish. The degree to which we are those things reflects the degree to which we are invested into, the, into being like the other nations, the, the nations out there, the world out there, rather than being in the recognizing and living in and abiding in Christ in his kingdom. So the first, what does it mean that we are a called out people? Well, there's a, a lot of things Uh, you know we we study the book of Colossians and we learn that Jesus uh, that God has transferred us from the domain of darkness all right so everybody's prophesying about the darkness that has come upon this country God has transferred us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light of his beloved son Jesus Christ so that's what we're called out to and I think that there are, are three things I think this is I think this speaks to us from a political standpoint I think this speaks to us from an economic standpoint and a physical well-being standpoint. You know, the, the nations of the world are in constant rebellion against Jesus, Psalm 2. And the warning in Psalm 2 is that nations and kings kiss the Messiah, draw near to him, serve and worship him. The scriptures teach us that all, that all of the nations are under the feet of Jesus right now. He sits as king over all things in heaven and on earth. He is ruling. Jesus is ruling it doesn't seem like it but Jesus is ruling and we know from Ephesians in the passage that we're encouraged to memorize as we go through that book that God is working all things according to his purpose to unite things all things in Jesus Christ Jesus as King will eventually be on earth as it is in heaven the finality the finality and Jesus secured that in his resurrection from the dead he not only defeated Satan's sin and death in his resurrection from the dead he defeated all of those things that were working and motivating those people the Jews and the Romans to kill him the economic the material the political all of these motivations Jesus overcame them and the nations of this world represented by the Jews and the Gentiles could not keep the king underground so the movement of nations we have to see that the movement of nations even though that movement may seem bad the movement of nations is the work of God to bring all things under the kingship of Jesus and that we know from scripture that all nations are going to conspire at the end against the christ who has returned all nations are going to wage war against jesus and move towards evil that has to include our nation we should anticipate our nation at some point is it now i don't know is it in the future absolutely our nation is going to fight against jesus the possibility of a righteous america is an unfounded fantasy in regard to our economic well being, you know, God promises to meet our needs. God promises to meet our needs if we trust Him. He doesn't promise to, to keep us in our present economic status. If we're concerned about losing our present economic status, then we're too invested into the ways and systems of this world. God has promised to meet our needs to, to provide our daily bread. It is not something that should lead to fear and anxiety. Physical well-being. Nobody wants to get hurt. Nobody wants to see their children or their grandchildren hurt. It causes a lot of fear. But you know, no political party can promise this. God does not even promise to save us from physical harm. Governments can instill laws and policies for public health and public safety and civil society. And no party has a monopoly on those tools. History shows that that Republican or Democrat or progressive or independent, uh, at times all, all of them have been weak on law enforcement or heavy on law enforcement. No party has a monopoly on these things. There is no way to prevent physical harm. Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades, the scripture says, which means that our physical well being, our lives are in the hands of Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures teach. So that gives us freedom and confidence to put our trust in Christ, not in our government. I was reading the paper yesterday, and the, the New York Times was quoting I'm going to vote like my life depends upon it. Your life doesn't depend upon your vote. Your life is in the hands of Jesus Christ who holds the keys to death and Hades. So the first thing, a called out people, political, economic, physical. Second, God has called us to live a distinct life. I think this has to do with our morality, our relationships, and our life purpose. You know, in the midst of suffering and unease, we, we tend towards licentiousness, which means that because we are suffering, we think that we have the license to do something that we wouldn't do if we were not suffering. And there's been an increase in, in specifically as, as, as reports have come out, in, in a lot of various ways of licentiousness, but pornography has increased, substance abuse has increased, violence has increased. God has called us from all of these things. Violence is is the, the working out through anger of resentments and bitterness that we have towards others that have hurt us. We think we have license because we're hurt to hurt others. Substance abuse, we're trying to escape the turmoils of this world. Pornography. There is a release that comes through uh, the the act of sex as God has provided, so we constantly are pursuing the comfort from that that release that we get from the sexual experience. But you know what, It, it, it doesn't satisfy. None of these things satisfy, and our world increasingly sees and testifies to the fact that these things don't satisfy. From a relationships standpoint, our culture is completely polarized we are fighting one another we are all on various sides of a whole number of issues and we are fighting each other god has called his people to be different a couple weeks ago i was preaching from james and james says the wisdom of god the wisdom from above is different from the wisdom on this earth if you want to look for true wisdom true wisdom is going to be characterized He's not, talking about, he's not talking about doctrines or policies in this passage in James. He's talking about a person's character and demeanor. Are they sincere and generous in their m- motives? Or are they looking out for themselves? Wisdom from above has sincere and generous motivations. Does the person display in their demeanor the presence of peace and steadfastness or does fear and anxiety characterize them? Are they, are they gentle or are they harsh? Gentleness is a reflection of wisdom. Are they open to reason, which means that you actually pursue people to persuade you of their perspective. I don't, you don't see that at all. Like I want you to explain to me the best of your ability why your arguments are better than mine and I'm really open to listening and correcting mine if you prove to me that they are better arguments. That used to be the way we thought about being liberal being humble and open to understanding other people's perspectives and considering them because they might be true and we would benefit from the truth we don't see that anymore but that is a characterization of wisdom are they compassionate and generous in meeting needs are they without prejudice in, in regard to life purpose. So I wanna, I wanna, so I mentioned Morris Berman earlier from his book, The Twilight of American Culture. He wrote a book a few years ago go called, um, Are We There Yet? He's asking the question, have we come to the point where American culture has completely collapsed? And he's being interviewed, and I wanna, I wanna, I wanna read this because it's helpful and I, I wanna, just want to point out what his perspective is on what what Americans see as their life purpose. And this is from 2012, Uh, prior to the Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump campaigns, uh, prior to the increase of populism. So the interviewer asks this, he says, most political analysts place the blame for our current situation on major institutions, whether it's Wall Street, Congress, the Bush or Obama administrations, and so on. You agree with them to a great extent, but you also seem to place a lot of emphasis on the American people themselves, on individual values and behavior. Why is that? How do you see that as a factor? Morris Berman then replies, well, the dominant thinking on the left, I suppose, is is some variety of a false consciousness argument that the elite have pulled the wool over the eyes of the vast majority of the population And once the latter realizes that they've been had, they'll rebel. They'll move the the country in a populist or democratic socialist direction. The problem I have with this is is the evident fact that most Americans want the American dream. Not a different way of life, but a Mercedes Benz, as Janis Joplin once put it. Endless material wealth based on individual striving is the American ideal. And the desire to change that paradigm is practically non-existent. Even the poor buy into this, which is why John Steinbeck once remarked that they regard themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Hence, I would argue that nations get the governments they deserve, that the wool, is the eyes which is i I wanted to quote that because it's really incredibly consistent in the warnings that ezekiel is giving the nation that god was giving them you are pursuing what your eyes see in the other nations and what you see is what is deceiving you now god gives us laws laws that bring life in regard to materialism god says to give of our first fruits which saves us it saves us from the fear of not having enough god says to give generously which means that we can share in god's character and experience the freedom of freely giving what you have for the benefit of others god says to give sacrificially which blesses us with a little bit of suffering, giving us the freedom and confidence to know that you know what, we can make it without having everything our eyes desire. God commands us to give joyously, which is an expression of worship and serving others. You know, sometimes I take people out to lunch or I wanna give them a gift or return a, a kindness to them and they say, no, 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 and I say, listen, and I got this from Oscar Huerta, who was an elder here at the church years ago. He said, George, I, I was, I was, he was giving me a very generous thing. I said, Oscar, you don't need to do that. He said, George, don't rob me of the joy of blessing you. God gives us that command to give joyously because once we experience it and follow Jesus in that command, he does produce joy. We are called to support the work of the gospel which gives us the, the gift of knowing that our work and what we give is going to something eternal. not just temporal we're called to meet the needs in the church and in the world which saves us from selfishness and finally God gives us the command to enjoy what he has given us in this material world but we can only do that if we have followed him and all of these other commands see our pursuit of material prosperity in America, I think it isn't, I know I'm saying it's everything, but I think he's accurate in saying that is a large part of what America is about and a large part of what we dream and make our life purpose. But God gives us these good laws that give life. And finally, our internal and our external lives. You know, all of us are gonna experience fear. All of us are going to experience anxiety and depression and other you know, serious mental health challenges. The question is: Do these things characterize us or can we overcome them? If they are our habit and demeanor and are not when we are not overcoming them, the internal distress and outward selfishness, they are a sign of sin present in our lives and are buying into of the world and what it has. I had a conversation this week with a with an unbelieving woman. And she was giving her perspective and the perspective of her friends. And she said, you know, we just all think like, what is the point? What is the point of knowing and following God? What difference does it make? And yet as I've, as I've heard her describe herself and, and her friends, they are constantly filled with anxiety and, and envy and, and internal challenges and worries. See, as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Jesus is calling us to thrive he promises the abundant life the the gospel of john is 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 uh, overly emphatic in this life that jesus promises a life that is empowered by the holy spirit that dwells in us is a, is a life that he gives our hearts and minds so that even in the midst of physical suffering and emotional suffering we can experience the life that he provides because of his presence in us which is the overcoming presence that resurrected hid from the dead and that is a power that we are called to know and to understand and pray for if we follow the the instructions and models in ephesians chapter 1 and 3. I mean, of the non-Christians that you know, the ones that are wealthy and fully employed and enjoying material benefits, all that this world provides, are they truly happy and prosperous? Not prosperous from a material way, but prosperous in that their lives are full and fruitful. Do the physically healthy that you know, are they without fear and anxiety of getting sick? Are they free of addictions and immorality and abusive relationships and selfishness? I mean, honestly, it's hard enough for us as Christians to live this abundant life that Christ has called us to, but that's what he's called us to, and that's what he has promised, you know what? And for the sake of his name, for those who follow him and abide in him, for the sake of his name, Jesus will empower that in our lives. Just as God was faithful for the sake of his name, among all the nations to fulfill his promises to Israel. We need to stop trusting what our eyes see and our ears hear from the world. They are the world's gods. Our tendency is to want to be like what we see. And they are opposed to Jesus. Jesus conquered all of these competing tensions and powers and rose from the dead to show it. Outside of Jesus, the world and its things kill us. When we seek them, these things made of wood and stone and metal, when we seek them for life and prosperity, we die. Jesus alone is able to provide the power and contentment and abundant life that we are asking for and longing for. And so in the midst of all of this turmoil, in the midst of the unsettledness of this world, let us together as God's people come together to show that life in the kingdom is distinct. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this word, for the powerful message of Ezekiel, for the f- profound nature of his prophecies, the stark contrast that he poses with, with us in the world. God, we, we pray that you would help us as, a, as, a, as your kingdom, here in the midst of other kingdoms to show that we have the king we have a better king and he does sustain us and he does fulfill his promises help us lord jesus to fulfill that calling upon our lives in your son's precious name we pray amen